Welcome to this week's message at Corner Bible Church. We're so glad that you could join us. If you'd like more information on our church, you could check us out at our website, cornerbiblechurch.com, or you can like or follow us on Facebook. Now here's this week's message. Thank you for listening. All right, so the format's a little different this morning. I get uh, I get my sweet like lumbar support pillow back here. My wife was really kind and gave me the the low sitting chair for the tall guys, I guess. <laughs> but uh, this week we're going to be us uh, kicking off our asking for a friend series. How many of you guys were here for the last asking for a friend series that we did? Okay, so we got a lot of new people, which are is, is really really good for this. So we we have not only our asking for a friend on our podcast, but we've done this last year as well. And it just yielded a lot of fruit. There was a lot of really good stuff that came out of it. If nothing else, a lot of great questions and a lot of great conversations, um, which helped kind of spur each one of us on, hopefully to get back in the scriptures. Maybe this is a season where you're doing some spring cleaning. Maybe we need to do some spiritual spring cleaning. Amen. We all have those seasons and maybe we're a little dry. We need a little bit of fertilizer on the grass or something, you know. And so we're going to kick it off this week. We've got um, our two guest speakers. We have Dean DeHogue and Dave Kroc. Would you invite them to the stage this morning? <laughs> or if, if you like those, those poetry slam things, you can do the snappity snaps. But uh, no, we're, uh, we're excited that you guys are with us and carving out the time uh, to, to take time to actually answer these questions. So we're going to start off with Dean, and Dean's question is, first and foremost, what does the Bible have to say about rapture? Like, it's not even in there. I've never seen the word rapture anywhere in Scripture. I mean, it's kind of the same with Trinity, right? This, this ambiguous idea. So what does Scripture have to say about rapture, Dean? All right, thanks, Mike. Um, this is a great question. I love this question. What does the Bible say about the rapture? The reason I like it is because it's so relevant for today. You look at society, you look at where the world's heading, you look at all of the end times prophecy that's happening um, right in front of us and that's talked about in the Bible, and this is just such a fitting question for today. It's also a little bit of a controversial question. So if I step on some toes, I'll apologize in advance, all right? Um, but at the same time, it's not something that we should avoid. Um, it's something that we should talk about. We should study end times. I know Chris and Michelle have been doing a fabulous job talking about end times in the teens class in the back. And um, that's just, it's stirred up some really good questions. And I, if I had to bet, I'll bet that this question might have come from that class. <laughs> Allison, do you think I'm right? Yeah, okay. All right. Um, Revelation even has a promise of a blessing if we dig into the scripture and dig into the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 3, it talks about, it says, Blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So there's a unique blessing that kicks off the book of Revelation. So again, it's something we should study, something we should dig into. And it's not something that we should avoid just because it might appear to be confusing or complicated. So hopefully in the time that I've got, oh, we got the same, we got 30 minutes again, Dave. So 15 and 15, All right, we're, we're right on schedule. Um, so I'm going to cover, I want to cover four parts as it relates to the rapture today. 
Number one, what does the word rapture mean? Number two, when will the rapture occur? Number three, what will the rapture look like? And number four, who will be raptured? Now, as I look around, I see some guys who are in the Monday night revelation class at Nick's house. So just for some reference, there's a group of us that have been in revelation for, Gene, how long? Five years? Six years. And we just finished up. So I have a binder that's about that thick of notes from that class, and now I have to condense it down into 15 minutes. So that's going to be the challenge. So first of all, the, the first part, what does the word rapture mean? The word rapture comes from the Greek word. Again, it's not in the Bible, but it's a Greek reference, and the Greek word is harpazo. Harpazo literally means to grab or snatch something very suddenly and move it from one realm over to another realm. So think of it a little bit like you got this house fire and there's a small child trapped inside. What do the firemen do? They rush inside, they grab the child, get them out of danger, and they bring them out to the front yard where it's safe. So just that's the picture of rapture. That's the picture of what a harpazo looks like. Grabbing something suddenly and moving it from one realm to another realm. So probably the best definition or the best place where this is laid out is in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It says, it talks of us being caught up or being brought up into the sky. It says that the dead in Christ will be caught up together with him. And then we have this picture of joining them in another realm. So are there examples of harpazo in the Bible? There are. There's quite a few. But I'm just going to focus on three. Two in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And again, I'll bet you that the teens who have sat in Chris's class know exactly which ones I'm going to share. So first of all, the story of Enoch. In Enoch in Genesis, it says, Enoch walked with God and then was no more. So one moment he's walking with God, and all of a sudden he's gone. Now the word walk is an interesting one because walk in this connotation means so much more. They weren't out for their exercise, okay? They were literally doing life together. They had an intimacy. They had a closeness. And it says they walked together, and then all of a sudden Enoch was no more. So for example, my wife and I, when we walk, there are times where we walk for exercise, okay? We put on our sweats, shoes, and we go and we walk, okay? But that's different from the way that my wife and I walk through life together. We have an intimacy, a closeness, a walk that nobody else has access to. That's our walk of life, and that's what's um, that's what's getting at in the story of Enoch. So that's the first Old Testament one. Second one is Elijah's transfer from earth to heaven. It says that a fiery chariot, fiery horses came down. Elijah jumped in this chariot, and it says that he was gone in a whirlwind, in a fiery whirlwind. So again, another person who did not experience earthly death, somehow, I don't know what this looked like, but he climbed into this fiery chariot, and it took him up, and he was gone. 
New Testament examples of a harpazo. Back in the desert, Philip was ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch. And this Ethiopian official, who it says was the treasurer of Queen Candace's government, so a pretty high up guy, he's sitting in the desert in his chariot, probably a pretty fancy chariot because he's a big time official, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. And he doesn't have any idea what he's reading. All of a sudden, Philip appears. And Philip says, hey, you know what you're reading there? And Philip explains it to the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian goes from being confused to understanding. And then all of a sudden, he says, wow, there's some water. How about if I get baptized? So Philip baptizes him. And then it says, when they came out of the water, it says that the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And then a couple verses later, it says, all of a sudden Philip finds himself in the town of Azotus, 20 miles away. So he baptizes this guy. He disappears. You know, the Ethiopian's coming out of the water. He's got his towel, and he's drying off, and Philip's gone. Philip is instantly in another town 20 miles away. So that's a harpazo that happened here on earth. Now, when you think about harpazo, I've got a question, but I asked Mike in the first service, so it's not going to have the same impact because I kind of shocked him in the first service. So I'm going to ask my daughter-in-law because she's sitting near the front, and I don't want to put her on the spot, but it's a really easy question. So if you and Mark are stranded on a desert island and you've got to pick between two movies, you've got Star Wars or Star Trek. Star, see, I knew it was going to be the answer. It's, the younger generation is all into Star Wars. The older generation, like me, sorry, I'm going to have to disagree with you, but it's Star Trek. Okay? The reason I say Star Trek is because Star Trek had the transporter room. Okay, you remember? They had the transporter room where they would go, beam me up, Scotty. And they'd be down on the planet, and then all of a sudden... Okay, you got to make the noise. Yep, the transporter room, their molecules, the molecules would readjust, and then all of a sudden they'd be, they used to be down on the planet, and now they're back in the transporter room on the, on the Starship Enterprise. That's Hollywood's best picture of what I think a harpazo is, moving from one realm to another realm, but miraculously, not by Hollywood. So that's what I think is a little bit of a glimpse of what a harpazo looks like. Okay, so now we've talked about what the rapture means. Next, when is it going to occur? But before we get into when it's going to occur, I want to share two phrases for you that I think will help. Two phrases. So think about the rapture as Christ coming for his church. Christ coming for his bride. A lot of times, rapture and Christ's return to rule and reign get confused. Christ's rule and reign is Christ coming back with his saints or with his church or with his bride. So you have the rapture coming for, and you have his future rule and reign coming with. So hopefully that'll help differentiate those two a little bit. So I got a couple of Bible fun facts 
just related to the, the, the when, right? First, when it relates to when, we got to remember that Christ is preparing a place for us. Talks about that in John 12. John 12 talks about, I'm preparing a place for you. He's getting it ready for us. So that's the fun, first fun fact. Fun fact number two, when the rapture happens, there will be a shout from Christ. Now, this is just opinion. This is inference. I don't know that the entire world will comprehend the shout. I think they may hear the shout, but I think they will be so oblivious to life that life will go on. I think the believers in Christ will instantly, it's like, oh, yes, it's finally here. That small remnant will recognize that voice, but I personally think that the rest of the world will ignore that voice. And number three, fun fact number three, remember that with all the prophecy that's in the Bible about end times, the rapture is not known as far as the time or the hour. And Christ even said that. No one knows the time or the hour. Only my heavenly Father knows. So we have all this prophecy. We've got all this symbolism. Everything pointing towards a future event. But the rapture is going to come out of nowhere. And it's going to be a surprise. So how does the rapture fit into the end times timeline? We just touched on that a little bit. And again, this is a little bit controversial. There's a lot of views on end times theology or what's called eschatology. But the more that I've studied, I have to say that my view on end times has done a complete 180. And when I look at end times teaching and I study and I've gone through the book of Revelation, I see the rapture as being the start and then all of a sudden, there's a lot of other events that are going to kick into the end times timeline. Now, some churches, some denominations, the Catholic Church, all look at end times differently. I got to tell you, even leaders, our, our, our leadership group here, we don't all agree on end times theology. But the challenge that we've got is looking carefully, studying carefully, because I'm going to just quick go through a couple of views. There's a historical view. There's churches that will teach that this all happened back in 70 AD. This all refers to the fall of the temple, and it all refers to the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire that was in place. There's another group of churches that teach that this is really hard to understand. Don't dig into it too much because it's just kind of, it's kind of mythical. It's just kind of a, kind of a neat story. But don't, you know, it, it really doesn't apply to our lives. There's another group that sees it as um, futuristic or literal. And that's the belief that I hold to, that there's something coming. It's in the future. We have a future event to look forward to. Next, what will the rapture look like? Okay, that's the third part that I wanted to cover. What will the rapture look like? I don't think it's going to look like the Left Behind movies. Okay? Just tell you that right up front. I don't think there's going to be all kinds of airplanes falling out of the sky. I don't think that there's going to be all kinds of snarls on the highways because there's all these cars with no drivers in them. I think it's going to help. I think it's going to happen in stealth mode. 
I think there's going to be a very, very small remnant that gets raptured out of here. Now, you may ask, why do you think that? Well, it's talked about in Luke, Luke 18. There's a verse that says, When Christ returns, will he even find faith on the earth? The Bible uses the remnant theme a lot when it comes to end times. It's going to be a very small group. So, for example, let me just, this is kind of how I view it happening. So, Jared and Lindsay, do you have a favorite coffee shop that you like to go to? Okay, so there's this coffee shop that Jared and Lindsay like to go to, and the rapture happens, those two are gone, and the people in the coffee shop, it's like, where's Jared and Lindsay? This is their normal day for coffee. Oh, well, whatever. I, I think that's what the rapture is going to look like. There's going to be so few people that pulled out that it's almost going to be like a non-event. So last part, and i got two minutes, so i got to hurry. Last one, who will be raptured? This is probably the most controversial part because the whole New Testament, Revelation, talk about a remnant, talk about a bride. What does that bride look like? Now, if you ask the universalist, the universalist says, don't worry, we're all going to get there. We're all going to be fine. Okay, Rob Bell, he goes on Oprah, and he tells Oprah, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about heaven and hell. God's loving. Everybody's going to get there. It's all going to be okay. What does the moralist say? The moralist says, just live a good life. Okay, don't kill anybody. Make sure you got good behavior. Don't sin too bad, and you'll be all right. Then there's another group, Christians. I said the prayer, I went to the altar call, I got baptized, but I really want to live my life the way that I want to live it. I have stuff I want to do, I got a bucket list. God, don't get in the way because I want to live my life my way. Okay, that's another group. I firmly believe, after reading and studying, that this small remnant, this bride, has a specific characteristic. It's going to be a bride that is not competitive. It's going to be a bride that is completely folded in to the will of God. It's going to be a bride that not only experienced salvation, the free gift from God, but also is actively and intentionally sanctifying every day putting to death the old nature, dying to self, fruiting out, and putting aside the sins of the flesh. I believe that that is a very small remnant. In closing, we have what Scripture says, maybe three score and ten, maybe 70 years, maybe 80 years, maybe more. But 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the summary of everything that I've shared this morning. And it says in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Thank you very much, Dean. That was a great answer. Um, and, uh, and it's important to realize and to, you know, when he's talking about the sanctification piece, it's not a works-based thing. Like, as Dean was saying, like, 
Jesus' blood is shed for you, and it covers those sins. And when we when we fold into His will, um, we we adopt that cloak of righteousness that only that only He can give. Um, but His Word does call us to lay down our lives and to seek wholeheartedly after Him, and, and not just a little bit, not like ah, just on Sundays or Wednesday nights because kids have a wana or whatever Bible group you might be attending. He is seeking for you to fold in every aspect, every corridor of your time, talent, resources, all of it. That's what he calls you to. And um, so we always want to make that clear. Uh, we are not a works-based church. We believe in the love of God and the love of Jesus um, and his, uh, his atoning blood. But our next question, and this is, a, this is a, an awesome, awesome question, I think, is how do I be an effective accountability partner. And Dave and I were talking a little bit about this on the way back from Chicago yesterday. It can, it can almost get a little weird in spots with, with this because accountability, um, it, is a, it is a two-way thing, but it's not something that you can specifically just pull out of Scripture and say, this is what Scripture says about accountability. Um, there's like lots of pieces and parts that you can kind of pull in. Um, and so it can get a little weird. People can start to really follow rules and, and that whole business that's kind of the scary part of accountability is I don't want to take too much, but uh, well, uh, Dave, how can I be a more effective or an effective accountability partner? Like Mike said, account, the phrase or the term accountability partner is not in Scripture, uh, just like the term rapture is not in Scripture either. Uh, so in my efforts to not share my opinion with you too much, uh, Kind of in my studies, one resource that I use often when it comes to like discipleship and counseling stuff is the uh, Biblical Coalition, uh, or sorry, the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Uh, it's an awesome website with tons of great resources uh, for like raising up your kids, um, kind of husband-wife stuff, um, actual legitimate counseling, discipleship. Uh, this idea of kind of accountability partner type stuff. Uh, so just an awesome resource for you as well to pass it along to you. Uh, but I stumbled upon an article on that website this week while I was kind of preparing for this question. Um, and the author titled the article, Five Questions I Wished My Accountability Partner Would Ask Me. Uh, it was written by a man named Brad Hambrick uh, from the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Um, and the main idea that he talks about, and he really expanded my view of this topic as well, uh, but the main idea is thinking about accountability as a lifestyle, not a punishment. Right? We're living an accountable life, not only to one another or not only to our accountability partner, but we're living our life accountable to Christ. Right? So this idea of submitting to one another in reverence for Christ, um, submitting to our authority, on earth as in heaven, all those different things like that kind of fold into this accountability idea. Uh, but when we're thinking about it as a lifestyle and not a punishment, a lifestyle will endure, but a punishment is temporary, right? Um, the idea of dieting, right, for an earthly example, right? I, I don't like the term diet. Uh, if we talk about nutrition as a lifestyle, diets are temporary, right? And diets oftentimes fail, and even if they do get us to the result that we want, when we see like shows like The Biggest Loser, right? 
over 60% of those folks end up back to where they were, if not uh, higher than they were prior to going on that show. So we're not talking about something that we can just insert and get a quick fix on, or we can just kind of sit down and push this button to change this, this problem. Uh, but we're actually talking about something that needs to be a lifestyle change. And it's this lifestyle of accountability. Uh, at the root, an accountability relationship is a friendship. Right? The best way to build an accountability relationship is to build it upon friendship. The only way it endures is if two people become friends. Right? Friends that don't go on what he calls an Easter egg hunt, a sin hunt, right? but rather enter into a lifelong friendship that walks through thick and thin together. All right, so I kind of put together my definition of, uh, of an accountability partner. I said, an accountability partner is a genuine, committed friend who asks the hard questions and gives the hard answers because they love you and desire your good. An accountability partner is a genuine, committed friend who asks the hard questions and gives the hard answers because they love you and desire your good. Like within that definition, kind of gives you a few attributes to, to look after. Uh, but in this article, he listed five questions an accountability partner should ask that he wished his accountability partner would ask. And they're kind of five questions that I had never really thought of. Uh, it kind of steers away from, he doesn't say that we should stop asking, you know, questions like, and how much, you know, uh, have you been in the Word? Uh, what sin have you been wrestling with? You know, kind of more formal questions that you might think of when you talk about accountability. Um, but he kind of adds on to that and takes it in, um, just kind of blows it up a little bit bigger. So the question number one, he says, what are you doing to enjoy life? First question, what are you doing to enjoy life? We sin because sin is fun. Okay, let's be honest, Right. We sin because sin is fun, because we like whatever that thing is. Our flesh desires it. And the more we deprive ourselves of legitimate pleasures, the more susceptible we are to those illegitimate pleasures. Right? You ever notice when you're in a season of depression or sadness or worry or stress, that's usually when temptation starts knocking at your door. Right? That's usually when things start to creep in. So if we're able to replace those sinful things or those temptations with something that's even better, or something that's at least equally good, we can really start to replace those sinful pleasures with something that's actually going to be beneficial. We can spur them on to legitimate pleasures just as much, if not more, than we push them to avoid sinful pleasures. So instead of continuously talking about how we avoid this sin or how we avoid this problem or how we avoid this temptation, we should be spending equal amount of time, if not more time, pushing them toward and spurring them on to pleasures that are actually a replacement of that thing. Right? We can kind of go back to the dieting thing again. If we just cut out all food that we enjoy and say, you just have to eat this trash food that you hate, it's not going to be something that ends or that continues throughout a lifestyle. It might be something that we can do for two weeks until it's time to go to Chick-fil-A, right? But if we can create a lifestyle of nutrition, that's going to be something that we can continue on. That's the exact same thing that he's talking about. Replacing a sinful behavior, replacing a sinful temptation with something that's just as good, if not better. So what are you doing to enjoy life, number one? Number two, 
What new stressors are entering your life? What new stressors are entering your life? See, for most of us, sin is often an escape. It's not something that we pursue, right? We're escaping something and we're going after this sinful behavior. It's something that we're trying because we're trying to escape from something else. Being aware of the things that we want to escape from are important. Even though we can't necessarily remove all stressful things, some of them we can remove, but we can't remove all stressors. But having someone else that's, that's knowledgeable of them, that understands them, it kind of helps us to remove or it helps us to combat the lies that we're in this thing on our own. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Right? We have somebody that's walking through that season with us. So asking the question, what, what new stressors have come into your life since we talked last? So we have number one, what are you doing to enjoy life? Number two, what new stressors are entering your life? Number three, would you like to just hang out? Crazy concept, right? Would you like to just be friends? Would you like to entertain the idea that maybe some of our time spent together can just be hanging out? I know it sounds crazy, church people hanging out with church people and not talking about church stuff, okay? But we can do it. And it's going to be an amazing part of this accountability relationship, and it's actually going to build more into the accountability discussions and the accountability times and make them more powerful. There's going to be more trust. There's going to be more love. There's going to be more acceptance. There's going to be more openness and willingness to share because I can say this person actually loves me. Right? This person actually desires my good. This person is not just here to fix me and to find my sin and you know, shove it in my face and say, this, you need to fix this, you need to change this. Right? We're not interested, I say it from up here all the time, we're not interested in modifying behavior. Right? But we're really interested in dealing with heart issues and fixing those heart issues to change behaviors. Right? So number three, would you like to just hang out? Crazy idea. Number four. Who or what is getting too much airtime in your thought life right now? Who or what thing is getting too much airtime in your thought life right now? Passivity toward our thought life allows temptation to gain significant momentum before we even begin to call it temptation. Something that tempts you has been on your mind for a long time before you actually acknowledge it as temptation. And something has been temptation on your mind a long time before you've actually acted on that sin. So when we're talking about keeping track of our thought life, we're thinking what thing or what person, what problem has been consuming way too much of your thought life? What has been taking way too much airtime? Mental airtime can get consumed by past arguments, uh, fictional circumstances, fantasy, ideas, or even real personal ambitions that become too central to our identity. And knowing that somebody's going to ask you this question is going to ask you on a regular basis to be more aware of that thought life. Without somebody coming up and knowing that they're going to ask you those questions, we might not really think about it. We might not really take inventory too often about what we're thinking about. Remember, all of our actions started as thoughts. Right? So we should be spending more time actually thinking about our thoughts than thinking about our actions. So number one, what are you doing to enjoy life? Number two, what new stressors are entering your life? Number three, would you like to just hang out? Number four, 
who or what is getting too much airtime in your thought life? And lastly, number five, what are you passionate about in the coming weeks, months, or years? And how are those things going? See, sin robs us of time and resources that are intended to be invested in things that we're passionate about. God has actually given you time and resources to invest in things that you're passionate about. And sin is like a parasite that just leeches onto those things and steals that time and that passion and that energy. Right? I'm constantly talking with my kids, my wife, and our home saying, when we fall into sin, when we're wrestling with something, my first question is usually, well, what were you supposed to be doing instead? Because usually when we do fall into sin or we fall into temptation, it's because we should have been doing something else. <laughs> right? That time was that time was scheduled for something else. I should have been doing something else with that time, but instead I neglected it and I fell into this. And so we start talking about what are you passionate about? What are things that are driving you, right? We usually sin when we're supposed to be doing something else. So we talk about lustfulness, right, within a marriage. And we got a lot of married folks in here. When we talk about lustfulness, we're not trying to remove lustfulness, even from someone that's unmarried. Right, for, for a teenage kid. Or we're not trying to remove lustfulness. In fact, lustfulness is something that God has placed in us for a purpose. Right? It's a resource that God has used and he has placed in us for the marriage relationship. But the problem is our lustfulness is directed in a bad place. So we don't need to remove our lustfulness. We just need to change the location of that lustfulness. Right? Men, got, we got to remove that lustfulness from the screen to our wife. Right? Our wives have to remove that lustfulness from a fantasy idea of a husband to the reality of a husband. Right? So we're taking something, we're replacing it with something better. That's our best way to combat sin and temptation. Right? So what are you passionate about? What are you working toward? What do you have going on? Right? What are you using your resources toward? What are you using your time for? All good questions to ask. So just a quick recap. Number one, what are you doing to enjoy life? Number two, what new stressors are entering your life? Number three, do you want to just hang out sometimes? Uh, who or what is getting airtime in your thought life? And lastly, what are you passionate about in the coming weeks, months, and years? And how are those things going? Now, remember, this isn't an exhaustive list. right? And this list isn't meant to replace the questions like, hey, what's God teaching you in his word? That's my favorite, that's my favorite question to ask somebody, right? What's, what's God been teaching you in his word? That tells me whether you're walking with Christ in the moment. It tells me whether you've been in the word in the moment. And it tells me whether you've been obeying him or not in the moment. Right? In one simple question. It's not meant to, you know, hey, how, how's this sin been going? You've been wrestling with this? Like, how'd this week go? It's not meant to replace those questions. But it's just kind of adding on to those things. It's creating more of that relationship, lifestyle, accountability with these folks compared to just, you know, sitting down and poking at sin that this person's dealing with. So a couple things to close up to kind of recap. If you want to have an accountability partner, right, if you're somebody sitting in this room that wants to have an accountability partner, you have to make yourself accountable. Right? First of all, you have to be willing to be accountable. And sometimes that stinks, <laughs> Right? When our boss calls us to be accountable, we bristle. We're like, how dare you ask me about that thing, right? How dare you call me out on that? He's like, well, I'm your boss. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? But we don't want to be necessarily accountable. We don't want somebody taking account of our actions. So 
the first step is being willing to be accountable. You have to make yourself accountable. And number two, you, if you want to be an accountability partner, make a friendship and build accountability over time through love and trust. Right? First desire a strong, deep friendship with these folks and then build that accountability aspect through love and trust. Right? Sometimes in the moment, somebody might be in crisis and want the accountability partner, and right away you can jump into, hey, how, how can we work through this thing? Right? And, through, and by going through that traumatic experience with them, it builds that love and trust, that friendship. But most of the time, if it's just general, hey, I, I really need somebody to walk through this life with me, hold me accountable, I'm really struggling with X, Y, or Z, it's going to begin with a friendship if we want it to last for a long time, if we want it to endure the actual hard stuff. That's all I got. Yeah, that's a great answer, Dave. Give these guys a round of applause. Seriously, they did a great job. Great job this week. Yeah, that, uh, those normal questions that we like to ask, like, uh, you know, what, what sin have you been struggling with? It, a lot of times those, I don't want to say they're surface-level questions, but they do only tend to deal with the symptom rather than the disease, right? When you go into the doctor for a checkup, you know, they run all these tests to see what's really gone, going on. They don't just say, oh, well, you know, uh, your heart's racing fast because, uh, you know, you're getting old. They don't just do that. They don't just say that. They don't give a blanket answer. They want to say, okay, well, what is really causing this? Because, you know, based on this age and this weight and this height, you should really be right around here. And uh, those questions really seem to be more mining questions as opposed to just dealing with the, the Band-Aid scratches on the surface. That, that was a great, great list. Um, and just for you guys, if this has stirred up any questions with you, please um, seek any one of us out. We'd love to get questions down. Um, if it's stirred something up in you that you would like us to answer, um, you know, on a Sunday morning, we'd love to do that. We also have uh, CBC Ask Ask questions is that right or it's ask a, davis isn't in here so i'm going to botch the the gmail account but i think it's cbc ask a question um at gmail um, you can email those there or if you want like no contact with anybody in complete anonymity just write it on a piece of paper and stick it in any one of these black boxes that are kind of at the rear of the sanctuary uh, we want to make sure that we can answer any any questions that we get but um why don't we go ahead and we'll take some time to pray and uh, it's just an awesome morning of fellowship around just what, you know, a real practical sense of what God's doing and, and how can we take God's word and really, really apply. And I love the fact that these two were ambiguous questions because it forces us and it should remind us that we've got to be in the word in order to really see what God's doing. Amen? Like that is, that is uh, an untapped, often, uh, often an untapped power source that we just don't go to soon enough. And so uh, the, uh, the ambiguity of some of those questions, it should just remind us, let's be in our word daily. And uh, that way we can be encouraging one another. But let us pray. And then uh, we've got coffee in the back and we've got prayer room. If anybody needs prayer, if this has kind of stirred something up in you today, where maybe, maybe you're even just frustrated at Dean for his question, you know, <laughs> and, and you really need prayer or you think Dean needs prayer, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, you think he needs accountability. Uh, you know, we're going to have our prayer partners back there. And all joking aside, uh, that's, that's what we're here for. Uh, the body of Christ is here to, uh, to, to be loved to each other and to be there and help each other um, and hold each other accountable. So let us pray and let us on our way. 
Lord, we just come before you, and we are so grateful uh, just for the time that we had a chance to spend today. We thank you for uh, Dean and Dave and their time spent in the Word to, to really try to focus on, Lord, what, uh, what does your Word say about these things? Because we should be going to your Word. We should be going to you and seeking after you in prayer. And, uh, Lord, you, you give answers to questions, but oftentimes we're just afraid to ask. And so hopefully this helps maybe dislodge a little bit of that this morning and we can we can start to get to some of the real life stuff that we have questions about that that affect our walk with you and 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 maybe put us in a state of anxiety or worry. Um, Lord, we know that your word and your spirit offer peace. Where you are, there is peace. I pray that as we continue to learn that and as we we come across these things that may stir up in us and uh, make us nervous or even when our friends ask questions or or want to debate certain things and we feel inadequate lord we we want those questions we want to help build up the body of christ to where we feel adequate and have the boldness and the courage and the strength by and through your holy spirit that dwells in each and every one of us that believes um, to, to be able to withstand some of those attacks lord so continue to bolster up our confidence in you and, uh, and continue to help us trust you more and not lean in on our own understanding, but Lord, but to call after you and seek after your wisdom. We never ask, we'll never get the answer. So help us to not be afraid to ask. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time, for that we have a great rest of our Sunday together as we get a chance to depart from here and have lunch with family. Keep us safe and uh, just let us have a great week. And, uh, Lord, we just love you. We thank you for this time. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message here at Corner Bible Church. If you would like more audio resources, please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Or you can go online and visit us on our webpage at cornerbiblechurch.com.